Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. The Communist Necessity Prolegomena to Any Future Radical Theory by J. Mufuad Paul Communism We know it is a word to be used with caution, not because in the grand parade of words it may no longer be very fashionable, but because our worst enemies have used it and continue to do so, we insist. Certain words are like battlegrounds, Their meaning, revolutionary or reactionary, is a victory to be torn from the jaws of struggle, the invisible committee. Yesterday we had nothing. Today we have two great historical experiences rich in lessons, experiences which are present, which are alive in us. We must insist that the fact that there have been two restorations does not deny that the revolution is the main trend. To deny this fact is a pipe dream of reactionaries because the world proletarian revolution continues to advance and we are a part of that advance. It is undeniable that the world proletarian revolution will demand the cost of bloodshed. But what does not demand the cost of blood in this world? We ourselves would not be here without the lives sacrificed by so many communists and revolutionaries. Peruvian Communist Party Overture. The leftist milieu in North America and Europe has now reached a point where the movementism of the late 1990s is approaching its limits. Following the collapse of the Eastern Bloc, China's descent into state capitalism, and the degeneration of abandoned and small socialist satellite states such as Cuba, the left at the privileged centers of global capitalism entered an era of chaos. Unwilling to accept that capitalism was the end of history, while at the same time believing that communism was a failed project, leftist organizations dealt with their confusion by either disintegrating or distancing themselves from the past. If the history of actually existing socialism had indeed proved itself to be a grand failure, then the only hope for the activists of the 1990s was to discover a new way of making revolution. In those days, when fragile affinity groups embraced contingency and chaos, in the hope that this disorganized method would somehow produce revolution, we imagined we were building something new. We were incapable of understanding that all we were doing was uncritically replicating past methods of organization that had already revealed their ineffectiveness prior to the spectacular failure of communism. We returned to anarchism, without reflecting on the anarchist limits of the Spanish Revolution. We return to disorganization without understanding all of those incoherent currents of socialism that had failed to build anything beyond utopian speculation. We refuse to think through the problem of the state, forgetting the limits encountered by the communards in Paris. Incapable of understanding the precise meaning of the communist failure, we ended up repeating the past while imagining we were building something new. 
the 1999 protests against the World Trade Organization in Seattle, the mobilization against the 2001 Free Trade Areas of the Americas Summit in Quebec City, the 2001 G8 protests in Genoa, these were the high points of the anti-globalization movement. Together, along with other explosive moments of angry First World resistance, these struggles demonstrated a belief that innumerable and disconnected movements could topple capitalism, that their fractured efforts would intersect and amount to a critical breaking point. Eventually, this practice would collide with the fact of highly organized and militarized states that, unlike the chaotic activists challenging the power of capitalism, were more than capable of pacifying discontent. This was movementism, the assumption that specific social movements, sometimes divided along lines of identity or interest, could reach a critical mass and together, without any of that Leninist nonsense, end capitalism. By the time of the 2010 G20 summit in Toronto, this anti-capitalist methodology had already become a caricature of itself. The confrontations were echoed as tragedy or farce. There was a tired recognition that nothing would be accomplished, and the militants arrested were guilty only of demanding the right to protest. All of the high points, if they were indeed high points, of 1999 and 2001 were repeated in a tired and banal manner. The state remained unharmed. The activists resisting the state were punished. Before this farce, the coordinating committee of the 2010 demonstrations would absurdly maintain on multiple email listservs that we were winning, and yet it could never explain what it meant by, quote, we, unquote, nor did its claim about, quote, winning, unquote, make very much sense when it was patently clear that a victory against the G20 would have to be more than a weekend of protests. Had we truly reached a point where victory was nothing more than a successful demonstration? Where we simply succeeded in defending the liberal right to assembly? After all, it would be bizarre to assume that the people responsible for this triumphalist language actually believed that world imperialism would be defeated that weekend. They had already dampened their expectations, and when they spoke of winning, they were simply demonstrating a defeatist acceptance of lowered stakes. Those who refused to recognize 2010 as a caricature, who continue to argue that this organizational form and strategy is the only way forward, are like the hippies of the 1960s, behind the times, focused on their, quote, glory days, unquote, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, myopic in their inability to look beyond the boundaries of their time and space. They refuse to examine the past revolutions, just as they refuse to examine the revolutionary movements of today. In those zones that they claim to defend against imperialism, that had never been enamored with this movement as praxis, they are willing to settle for reformism and pretend that it is revolution, acting as if a successful defense of the right to assembly and the ability to make one's complaint heard are the only victories the movement can achieve. In order to make sense of our impasse, we adopted new theories of organization, anything that did not resemble the failures of the past, desperately hoping we could find the holy grail that would make another world possible. We ventured out into theoretical terrains we believed were exciting because of the whirlwind jargon some theorists employed. We spoke of rhizomes, of bloom, of deterritorialization, of the multitude, 
of anything that did not completely resemble the old-fashioned jargon that stank of failure. And yet our failures were not even world historical. We failed long before reaching those moments of grand failure that had disciplined us into adopting these alternative practices of rebellion. We were not even capable of replicating the failure of the Paris Commune, let alone the failures in Russia and China. We did nothing but protest, sometimes militantly agitating without any long-term plans, and fantasized that our activism was synonymous with revolution. Meanwhile, even before we embarked upon this confused path of social movementism, people's wars were being launched in those zones we claimed to represent under the auspices of a theory we had assumed was dead. Incapable of looking beyond the boundaries of our own practice, we often refused to recognize these movements, cherry-picking those moments of resistance that resembled our own practices. Instead of the Sendero Luminoso, we championed a particular narrative of the Zapatistas. Instead of Nepal, we focused on Venezuela. Instead of the Naxalites, we lauded the Arab Spring. Possessing the privilege to ignore everything that did not resemble our supposedly new way of seeing the world, we dismissed anything that could teach us otherwise. But now some of us, whose experiences of this banal failure have taught us that if another world is possible, it is only possible by abandoning the methods promoted by the anti-globalization movement, are beginning to question the normative anarchism and movementism that we once treated as common sense. The movementist dream is crumbling. We are beginning to peer through its cracks. We are glimpsing the problem of revolutionary necessity, the need to organize in a manner that goes beyond the infantile methods of movementism. Finally, the name communism is being revived at the centers of capitalism as part of an effort to reclaim the revolutionary heritage we abandoned. Although the revival is incomplete, there is a gap between name and concept. There is a refusal to recognize the communist revolutionary struggles that persisted in the global peripheries. There is an inability to grasp the dialectic of failure and success. First, the gap between name and concept. While there is an ongoing project amongst the first world intellectuals and activists to reclaim the name communism, there are still only a few small steps made to reclaim the concepts this name once mobilized. This gap might demonstrate some confusion on the part of those who are dissatisfied with the anti-globalization variant of movementism, but are still uncertain of how to free themselves from this morass. This gap is in part due to the way in which our understanding of communism is filtered through a first-world experience of history and social struggle. Most importantly, however, this gap intersects with a gap between theory and practice. Second, the refusal to recognize contemporary communist revolutions. Perhaps because of the first-world problem, we have a veritable lacuna of radical academic analysis when it comes to the experience of contemporary people's wars that have erupted and are still erupting outside of the imperialist centers. When we do not denounce these revolutionary movements according to various conservative or liberal narratives, they are, quote, terrorists, unquote, quote, adventurous, unquote, quote, murderers, unquote, quote, nihilists, unquote, etc., we simply pretend that they do not exist. Third, the inability to grasp the dialectic of failure and success. As noted, common sense ideology has succeeded in presenting communism as a grand failure. 
Although we cannot escape the fact that the past communist movements ultimately failed, this does not mean that they were not, at the same time, earth-shaking successes. If we can succeed in steering our way through the narrative of failure, we will be able to understand the revolutionary truths, hard won by the successes, that may transcend these failures. And it is here where communism's necessity will be discovered. Those of us who have struggled without communist ideology for decades are only beginning to make sense of the meaning of the name we had once rejected. We are still trying to recapture our heritage. Chapter 1, 21st Century Communism Finally, after decades of postmodernism and capitalist triumphalism, it is no longer considered impolite for academics and popular intellectuals to speak the word communism. For there was a time, not long ago, when we would have been seen as uncouth, or at least anachronistic, if we were to declare fidelity to a term that certain intellectual fads had declared old-fashioned, totalizing, violent. Until recently, we could escape by referring to ourselves as Marxist instead of communist, but only so long as we did not hyphenate our Marxism with any of those suspicious names such as Lenin or Mao, those people and movements responsible for applying Marxism and, in this application, declaring the word communism. Marxism, though passé, was considered toothless because it was only a theory, whereas communism was its possibly catastrophic application. And those who preserved this theory in the academic universe were often those who would never dare bridge the gap between theory and practice, content only to teach and sing the praises of Marxism, but never speak of communism except when they spoke of failure. As it turned out, very little was needed to convince many academics and intellectuals to be Marxist in theory rather than practice. The job security of tenure, liberal rights such as freedom of speech, and publication contracts. In this context, those intellectuals who refused to abandon political practice but who could not stomach the failed name of communism would fall back onto the more innocuous-sounding socialism when they sought a label for their activities. A term that was once synonymous with communism, but that through the experience of the great revolutions of the 20th century had come to mean something altogether different, became a fallback definition for those Marxists who would not remain content with an action. This was a retreat of sorts back into a, quote, pure-unquote Marxism before Lenin, where concepts that should have been irrevocably transformed by world historical revolutions were recorded to resume their germinal status, a retreat from history a retreat from the development of revolutionary concepts won through class struggle. By the dawn of the 21st century, it had become vogue for the more daring first-world Marxist academics and intellectual partisans to speak of a, quote, 21st century socialism, unquote, as if they were identifying a new revolutionary moment. More than one book was written with this catchphrase embedded somewhere in its title or subtitle. More than one speaker at a mainstream demonstration bandied it about and yet there was generally no consensus regarding its meaning. Some imagined that this new socialism was emerging in the movementist tides of the anti-globalization protests that began in Seattle. Others thought it was happening in the jungles of Mexico with the Zapatistas, EZLN. Others would eventually ascribe it to Chavez's Venezuela or some other left populist phenomenon in the Americas. Just what made this, quote, 21st century socialism, unquote, 
new or a product of the 21st century, though, was rather unclear, despite all attempts to make it seem apparent. It was more of a branding than anything else, an attempt to mobilize other and successive maxims. Quote, another world is possible, unquote. Quote, we are everywhere, unquote. Quote, the coming insurrection, unquote, that were always little more than slogans. And this nebulous fad avoided speaking of communism, of anything that would remind us of those significant decades in the 20th century that were seen as abject failure. This was the 21st century, after all, and we would be old-fashioned and out of touch if we spoke of those moments without melancholia. But now, in the past three or four years, there has been a resurgence of the name that was banned, the name we were told was obsolete, from the same quarters where it had been declared anthema. Now we have academics and popular intellectuals speaking of communist hypotheses, communist horizons, and communist possibilities. What was once taboo in these spaces is now being pronounced openly, and these pronouncements are not destroying the careers of those who make them. Quite the opposite, in fact. Now some careers are being made by declaring fidelity to the name that was once banned. At the same time, however, this new intellectual trend of declaring the name communism cannot break from the previous period of fearfulness and so shares all of the defects and nebulous speculations of the screeds to 21st century socialism. In many ways, this is just a substitution of one term for another, apparently more edgy because it now chooses to speak the name that was once forbidden. While it is true that there is an excitement in reclaiming a word that once frightened the capitalist order, this truth is toothless if it is nothing more than a name. Some would speak of communism as an idea or hypothesis that existed for thousands of years, nearly wrenching it from those generations who died in innumerable brave attempts to make it the watchword of the oppressed in the 20th century. In this sense, the word was dehistoricized, transformed into a platonic form, and those instances of fear and trembling where it was elevated to great heights, heights true from which it would fall, were treated as ruptured moments to be remembered only for their nostalgic importance. Others would speak of communism as a far-off horizon, some distant point we could only glimpse, and thus more of an inborn desire for another impossible world. A dream communism, something we might approach if we only had enough faith in disorganized and rebellious movements to take us there on directionless tides. A communism across a great ocean, hiding like the lost island of Atlantis. Still others speak of the word as a name that must be reclaimed because it makes the ruling classes tremble. We must renew this name, we are told, because it is correct to veil ourselves in the terminology our enemy despises. As if revolutionary action is a monstrous mask that will scare capitalism into retreat. At the same time, we are also told that renewing those traditions that provided us with this name, that handed us an important concept through great sacrifice, should be avoided. Quote, communization, unquote, rather than the revolutionary communism of the past, is the goal. Again, this is the 21st century, and if we are supposed to find a new method, even if it must share its name with past movements, we are told that we cannot take anything from this past because this past was only, and can only ever be, tragic. Despite a return to the name communism, 
there still appears to be a refusal to accept everything this name was supposed to mean. Because we were told it meant mass murder, totalitarianism, and most importantly, failure. We want to reclaim it. We might even want to argue against the Cold War discourse that speaks of mass murder and totalitarianism just to set the record straight. But we have been convinced that the catastrophe of the 20th century communism means we must start anew, that we can learn nothing from the past except to ignore this past altogether. Perhaps this refusal to reclaim communism in more than name is due to the, quote, end of history, unquote, proclaimed when the Soviet Union collapsed, when capitalists imagined that they were finally triumphant and wanted to convince us that class struggle was antiquated. Here began a discourse about communism, a discourse invinced by the rise of postmodern theory, where we were taught that even to speak the name communism was backwards, and that we should just accept that capitalism was, quote, the best of the worst, unquote. In this context, it is not surprising that the first academic attempts to reclaim the word are tentative. Better to hedge our bets and remake communism than speak more precisely of a theoretical tradition supposedly concluded when capitalist victory closed that historical chapter. And yet, despite this supposed, quote, end of history, unquote, communism as a revolutionary tradition never did go away. For though it might seem daring for academics and popular intellectuals at the centers of global capitalism to reclaim the word, communism has remained a vital necessity for individuals and movements living at the margins of both the world system and acceptable discourse. At the global centers, communists generally hid themselves within the labor and student movements, grudgingly accepting the terminology of socialism and often practiced a fearful blankism. At the peripheries, however, there are communists who have openly proclaimed a revolutionary communism from the very moment capitalism was declaring itself victorious. The Peruvian Communist Party, PCP, launched a people's war in the 1980s. The Communist Party of Nepal, Maoist, CPN Maoist, launched a people's war in the late 1990s. The Communist Party of India, Maoist, CPI Maoist, is engaged in a people's war now. The Communist Maoist Party of Afghanistan, CMPA, is planning on launching its own people's war in the near future. The Communist Party of the Philippines, CPP, has been carrying out its people's war with setbacks and reinitiations for some time now. In these spaces outside of the academic and intellectual arena, an arena where our daringness is measured by reclaiming only a name, communism remains a live option in the most forceful and momentous sense. It has not gone away. It is not just a name upon which a radical academic career can be built. So while it might seem, for those of us who live at the centers of capitalism, as if communism has been absent for decades and is only now being reclaimed by our daring new theorists, the fact is that this is simply a mirage. Communism did not bow off the historical stage. It is not only now being renewed by Slavoj Žižek, Elaine Badu, Jody Dean, and whoever else has repronounced the word here at the centers of capitalism. The fact is that it renewed itself again, in a revolutionary sense, in the 1980s, just when capitalism was proclaiming the death of communism and the end of history. But many of us who live in the global metropoles miss this event, or even continue to plead ignorance 
content to imagine that we can remake history here, that we can reinvent the meaning of communism as we please, ignoring those revolutionary movements that, if we have learned anything from Marx, are responsible for making history. Movements that have the most obvious fidelity to the name and that express this name, even in failed revolutions, are better than our tentative attempts to merely reclaim and rearticulate a word. The word communism remains and will always be reproclaimed and reasserted as long as capitalism remains. More than a hypothesis or horizon, communism is a necessity that will never cease being a necessity for the duration of capitalism's hegemony. All successes and failures need to be appreciated and even claimed in this context. If we understand communism as a necessity, we can comprehend not only the need for its renewal and reproclamation, but why it cannot simply actualize itself outside of history according to trans-historical hypotheses and nebulous future horizons. We must speak of a necessary communism grounded in the unfolding of history, a communism that is simultaneously in continuity with and in rupture from the past, a communism that is always a new return. Against Utopianism To speak of renewing communism as a necessity is to begin from that point, first opened by Marx and Engels, where the tradition of anti-capitalism was torn from its utopian basis. As Engels wrote in Anti-During, that diatribe which Marx believed was the best summation of their theory to date, quote, If the whole of modern society is not to perish, a revolution in the mode of production and distribution must take place, a revolution which will put an end to all class distinctions. On this tangible, material fact, which is impressing itself in a more or less clear form, but with insuperable necessity, on the minds of the exploited proletarians, on this fact, and not on the conceptions of justice and injustice held by an armchair philosopher, is modern socialism's confidence and victory founded." Unquote. Engels' argument will later be simplified by Rosa Luxemburg to mean socialism or barbarism. That is, either we embrace the possibility of a socialist revolution that could establish communism, or we accept that capitalism is the end of history and thus the fact of barbarism, that, quote, modern society is to perish, unquote. Communism, then, is a necessity because otherwise capitalism, due to its intrinsic logic, will devour existence. And it is senseless to speak of communist horizons in any other way. For what other reason is there to desire a better world beyond the limits of capitalism? Because capitalism is mean, evil, immoral, because we don't like it? These are, as Engels was quick to note at the end of the 19th century, the complaints of armchair philosophers. Abstract moral theorizing cannot escape the problem of competing class morality, and those who attempt to establish a concrete morality that is universal, even when they are not pulled back into the terrain of abstract morality, are still incapable of producing revolution. Such justifications do not provide a reason to transcend capitalism, to speak of any horizon, for they are most often caught within a dialogue of competing moralities. The morality of the oppressor is to continue oppressing. The morality of the oppressed is to revolt. The only reason why the latter is superior to the former is a reason that must come from outside of this debate. 
the necessity of revolution due to the fact that the position of the former is, in the last instance, contingent upon the annihilation of the basis of existence, and that the latter, the exploited, the oppressed, the wretched of the earth, make history. Communism, then, is more than an ethical necessity. It is an historical and material necessity. But it is precisely this point of necessity that recent talk of communism, which speaks of hypotheses and horizons, seems to evade. To claim that, quote, another world is possible, unquote, after all, is not the same as claiming that another world is necessary. Or more accurately, that even this world is unsustainable as it exists now. Another world then becomes necessary if we are to survive and flourish as a species. Instead, we speak of the importance of a transhistorical hypothesis, or the theoretical significance of a world somewhere over the rainbow. Hence the immediacy of the communist project. That which speaks to the imminence of revolution is often ignored. To speak of a communist necessity is to speak precisely of the need for revolution. If we claim that communism is an immediate need, a necessity produced by the logic of capitalism, as Engels suggests, then we should be led to thinking through the necessary steps that would end capitalism and bring communism into being. A hypothesis is simply a philosophical quandary. A horizon is little more than a fantasy. A possibility is a useful way of recognizing that the current reality may not be eternal, but a necessity is so much more. Communism is necessary, a material need. This tells us what it means to declare fidelity to the name communism. To dodge the question of necessity is to dodge the need for revolution. To take the question of communism and place it in the stark framework Engels emphasize in anti-During, though, might not seem as sexy as to speak of hypotheses and horizons. Why bother returning to a supposedly, quote, scientific, unquote, statement made by Engels at the end of the 19th century? After all, when the 21st century is upon us, and we need to repopularize communism without recourse to some stodgy and apparently old-fashioned way of looking at the world. But now, with the annihilation of the entire ecosystem an immediate possibility because of the logic of capitalism, Engels' framing of the question of necessity should be even more striking. The question socialism or barbarism is not a philosophical thought experiment, but a momentous demand. The dream of a possible horizon does nothing to answer the immediacy of this question because it fails to address the problem of necessity. Dreams are like this, fantasies projected upon the future that tend to sidestep those messy real-world events where there were significant attempts to build the content of these dreams. The thing about real life, unfortunately, is that it never identically resembles the dream. Thus, instead of dreaming about horizons, it is better to recognize that we are currently caught in the dream of capitalism as lucid dreamers in a terrible nightmare. When we recognize that we are in a nightmare, it is waking that becomes a necessity rather than subordinating ourselves to another fantasy. And yet to speak of communism as something other than a necessity is an easy way to reclaim the word without reclaiming anything but a vague idea behind the word. It is to intentionally ignore what is needed in a very concrete and material sense, to bring communism into being. Hypotheses are things that can be worked out, that require academic investigation. 
Horizons are point of existence out of sight. Possibilities are open questions. Necessities, however, demand our immediate attention and mobilize practice. When the movements behind the two great but unsuccessful world historical revolutions of the 20th century recognized that communism was a visceral necessity, they developed theories that spoke to this necessity and that, despite their eventual failures, brought us closer to the possibility, to recognizing the hypothesis, to breaching the horizon. The recognition of the necessity for communist revolution, first in Russia and then in China, produced a certain level of revolutionary success that could only lead to the encounter of other necessities. If anything, these moments, whatever their shortcomings, should remind us of the importance of communism and its necessity. We should not hide from these failures, attempt to sidestep them by vague rearticulation of the terminology, or refuse to grasp that they were also successes. If we are to learn from the past through the lens of the necessity of making revolution, then we need to do so with an honesty that treats the practice of making communism as an historical argument. The Problem of Movementism All this new talk about communism that avoids the necessity of actually bringing communism into being demonstrates a fear of the very name communism. In this context, one can be a communist in theory, but not necessarily a communist in practice. When communism becomes a philosophical problem, or even a significant dream, it is no longer vital, and the people speaking of its vitality are refusing to ask the crucial questions that would make communism apparent. The unfocused rebellions that are emerging globally do indeed prove the importance of communism by revealing the limits of the capitalist reality. However, we demonstrate a certain measure of fearfulness over the importance of these rebellions if our suggestions, when we bother to make them, result in tailing the masses, those masses whose rebellions are vague enough to be fantastical, and hoping they will magically bring communism into being. The Arab Spring, Occupy, the next uprising, why do we look to these examples as expressions of communism instead of looking to those movements, organized militantly under a communist ideology, that are making more coherent and revolutionary demands? These are movements that have not forgotten that communism is a necessity, that are not enamored by the rediscovery of a name that only fell out of favor in the centers of global capitalism. Those who understand communism as only an hypothesis, a horizon, a possibility are also those who are incapable of bridging the gap between theory and practice. The act of making communism a reality is generally unpleasant, but so is reality. If we have learned anything from the last two earth-shaking revolutions, it is that bringing communism into being is a messy business. Here we must remember Mao's aphorism that revolution is not a dinner party, but a tragically violent upheaval in which one class seeks to displace another and the ruling classes we seek to displace will not easily abdicate the historical stage. To speak of communism as a necessity, then, is to focus on the concrete world and ask what steps are necessary to make it a reality. If the point of necessity is also, as Engels wagered, a scientific axiom, then perhaps it makes sense to treat the process of revolution in the manner of a science, something that is open to the future, that is still in development, while at the same time possessing moments of universalization that have been established through world historical victories. 
Intellectuals at the centers of capitalism who are attempting to reclaim the name might give lip service to Luxembourg's maxim, quote, socialism or barbarism, unquote. But what the application of this maxim would mean in practice, that is the question of how to make the necessity of communism a reality, is generally avoided. And so we must ask why these repopularizations of communism contain no significant attempt to adequately theorize the steps necessary in any particular context for making communism. If anything, those first world intellectuals engaged in repopularizing communism tend to make movementist strategies and tactics their default practice. Placing their faith in disorganized rebellions, they argue either explicitly or implicitly that we must tail every unfocused mass protest that erupts in response to global capitalism. The argument, though not always stated, is that these protests will, through some inexplicable mechanism of combination, produce a revolutionary critical mass, at some point, on the distant horizon, that will finally resolve the communist hypothesis. This is precisely what is now called movementism. There was a time in the late 1990s and early 2000s where most of us believed this movementist strategy was synonymous with revolutionary praxis. We went to Seattle to protest the World Trade Organization. We assembled in Quebec City to challenge the free trade agreement of the Americas. We proclaimed that we were part of a beautiful and fragmented chaos of affinity groups, conflicted organizations, disorganized rebels, all of whom were somehow part of the same social movement that was greater than the sum of its parts. We believed ourselves to be raindrops that would produce a flood capable of sweeping away capitalism unwilling to recognize that this was perhaps a false analogy and that we were more accurately, in very concrete terms, a disorganized mobs of enraged plebeians shaking our fist at a disciplined imperial army. Years ago, we spoke of, quote, social movementism, unquote, but now it only makes sense to drop the, quote, social, unquote, since this phase of confusion was incapable of understanding the social terrain. So while we should endorse every rebellion against capitalism and imperialism, no matter how desperate, as Frantz Fanon once put it, we should also realize that the unfocused nature of these rebellions is intrinsically incapable of responding to the problems of necessity. As the Parti Communiste Revolutionnaire, PCRRCP, argued in its 2006 document, how we intend to fight, quote, the ruling political tendency has totally assimilated the idea that there is no more unity. For them, social facts are like a bag of marbles that fall on the ground in all directions and with no common trajectory, and they want everybody to think of this as being a normal fact. As a matter of fact, the current situation tells us that many movements, quote, tumble, unquote, like Mao said, or they will stumble in the following period, because they refuse to see things in their entirety. They preserve this concept of a bag of marbles and like to see multiplication of trajectories, solutions, possibilities, alternatives, and reform projects. It is a rather accommodating yet ineffective diversity." Unquote. This passage concludes a few paragraphs later that, quote, this path goes nowhere and will literally be punctured by the facts of the decades to come. Will we overcome this division or will the bourgeoisie completely crush us? Unquote. It goes nowhere because due to its very nature, it cannot approach the point of unity, the point of theoretical and practical totality that the postmodernists warned us to avoid. 
that we should emanate from the understanding that communism is a necessity. For when we speak of necessities, we also have to speak of building a unified movement that, due to this unity, will possess the intention of making what is necessary a reality. Disparate, unfocused, and divided movements lack a unified intentionality. They have proved themselves incapable of pursuing the necessity of communism. The all-too-easy movementist solution, either implicit or explicit in these new endorsements of communism, should be understood as an assimilation of an idea of disunity that has, indeed, become, quote, a normal fact, unquote, at the centers of capitalism. In 2003, the anti-globalization editorial collective Notes from Nowhere put together a book called We Are Everywhere that argued, quote, different movements around the world are busy strengthening their networks, developing their autonomy, taking to the streets in huge carnivals against capital, resisting brutal repression and growing stronger as a result, and exploring new notions of sharing power rather than wielding it. Our voices are mingling in the fields and on the streets across the planet, where seemingly separate movements converge and the wave of global resistance becomes a tsunami, causing turbulence thousands of miles away, and simultaneously creating ripples which lap at our doorstep." Unquote. Lovely words, to be sure, but what happened to the movements this book documented? Movements that were meant to converge without taking power in a, quote, movement of movements, unquote, and end capitalism. From movements as disparate as the EZLN in Mexico to the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, OCAP, in Toronto, the disunified terrain in which this book placed its hope evaporated within a few years of the book's publication, for it was never really united with a focused intention dedicated to the necessary end of capitalism. Dreamlike and carnivalesque, these were movements that might or might not have been important rebellions, but could never produce revolution. It is significant, perhaps, that We Are Everywhere concludes with a poetic excerpt from Arundhati Roy's Come September speech. Quote, Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing, unquote. But Roy has transgressed the boundaries of movementism. Today, she spends a great deal of time defending the People's War in India, a revolutionary movement that would have greatly offended the editors of this book in their idealist proclamations of making revolution without taking power. Roy's shift in strategy is significant because, if read in historical context, this chronicle of the previous and failed movementist approach to revolution is an opening, an invitation, to a new return to the communist necessity it refused to address. Another downfall of the movementist approach to revolution is that it is incapable, due to the very fact of its disorganization, of producing consistent historical memory. For how can we have such a memory if we are focused on incoherence and thus, ultimately, forgetting? As such, it is only natural that last decade's movementism would be echoed by the still popular movementism of this decade. Perhaps it makes sense that the proudly edited and published collection of today's movementism would also echo the collection of the past movementism. Now we have a book called We Are Many that is focused on the so-called, quote, Arab Spring, unquote, and the, quote, Occupy movement, unquote, and generally amnesiatic about the fate of the movements in We Are Everywhere, recycles the same tropes. And it is in this general context where we find the odd intellectual speaking of communist hypotheses, possibilities, horizons.
a context that remains ignorant of the preceding context, which established nothing because it was incapable of accomplishing anything. So why then do those who now speak of communism desire a continuation of this ineffective practice that, at least in the period documented by the Notes from Nowhere Collective, was wary of uttering this banned name. To go further than simply speak the name is an act of fear and trembling, a terrified remembering of a past experience that we have been told was cataclysmic. Here at the centers of capitalism, we have inherited a suspicion of a project we have been socialized into believing was nothing more than totalitarianism, a brutal, quote, animal farm, unquote, that can teach us nothing. So when only the name, and not the necessity behind the name, is reclaimed, this deficient way of seeing the world is inherited. And from this inheritance, because we do not want to conceptualize a return that will both continue and rupture from these past revolutions, the only praxis that we can imagine is another articulation of the same movementism that, once upon a time, was even suspicious of communism. For it is a fearful thing to direct oneself towards actually making communism. Talk is cheap in the face of necessity. Talk that avoids necessity will only lead to failure because refusing to conceptualize praxis is something more than a philosophical problem, and in this refusal, remobilizing the same movement as categories, we will remain trapped on the abstract level of appearance rather than descending to the concrete realm of necessity. Quote, By only sticking to the appearance and subjectivity born out of any given situation, by remaining blind to the totality of the movement and denying the links and meditations, we give rise to a practice which moves far from the true power of the struggle. It is a waste. It is as if we refuse the immense and superb capabilities of the revolutionary struggle. The petty bourgeoisie may be able to ignore and go without this potential, but the proletariat cannot. That is why we say in the current situation, nothing is more right, useful, and constructive than to struggle for developing a genuine and common class project. We mean to conceive our tools, our methods, and our objectives under the terms and conditions of totality and unity. We have a great need for conceiving this revolutionary struggle. We must carry out the interests of the movement as a whole." Unquote. PCRRCP. And carrying out the interests of the movement as a whole, a demand produced by the intentionality of necessity, is something no errant hypothesis and no imagined horizon, still landlocked within the movementist terrain, can produce. Science and Necessity Before examining the phenomenon of movementism in more detail, however, it is worth pausing to think about the word science that, from its very first utterance, places us beyond the pale of polite activist discourse. We now live in a time where this word is treated as suspect by many involved in anti-capitalist projects. Woe betide those who would connect it to the word revolutionary and speak of a scientific assessment of struggle. There are, of course, laudable reasons behind the suspicion. We know how the scientific method and scientific labor have been used by capitalism. We understand the horrors of technologies adapted to military logic, of the vicious and exclusionary nature of the medical-industrial complex, of the science harnessed by colonial and imperial projects to categorize, control, and dehumanize subject populations. 
of the ways in which science has acted as a discourse to promote the interests of the ruling classes. We rightly mock the, quote, scientific, unquote, gibberish of evolutionary psychology and other biodeterminist nonsense. Decades of critical theory and philosophy has made us cynical. But what has this totalizing cynicism produced? On the one hand, a scornful mistrust of the word science when it is used to speak of history and social change on the part of those who benefit by living at the centers of global capitalism from a monopoly of scientific advancement. On the other hand, a conscious anti-scientism and flight back into mysticism that was not only evident in the U.S. hippie movement of the 1960s, but in every contemporary collaboration with religious obscurantism. Both rejections of science combine and diverge in every movement to space. Often we encounter a suspicion of science premised on the assumption that it is a European dogma, not different from a religion, that suppresses the world views of those who were Europe's victims. While we should be aware that colonial conquest was, in part, achieved through a cultural suppression, where the spirituality of the colonizer, i.e. Judeo-Christianity, was treated as, quote, rational, unquote, and perhaps even, though wrongly, scientific, in comparison to the supposed, quote, barbaric, unquote, spirituality of the colonized, there is a problem with, quote, Europeanizing, quote, science as a whole. Here, Science is treated as a colonial practice, and spirituality the business of the colonized. The latter may even be fetishized and, in this fetishism, appropriated in the most racist, though implicit, sense of the term. Assuming that science is something, quote, invented, unquote, by Europeans, however, is to erase all of the scientific practices and discoveries of those peoples European colonialism genocided and colonized, stealing and claiming scientific discoveries in the process. If we are to reclaim the immediacy of communism as necessity, then we must also reclaim the conceptual meaning of science. In the crudest sense of scientific advancement, of technological instruments, this fact should be obvious. Capitalism possesses a monopoly over those technologies that are capable of maintaining social control guns, tanks, drones, etc. We will not topple this brutal system through meditation of any sort, let alone our own moral and spontaneous will to, quote, speak truth to power, unquote, in innumerable demonstrations where the state's police and military are better prepared than the average protester. Movementism has already produced a mythology of struggle that would lead us to believe otherwise, a moralism that runs counter to reality, Wishful thinking that if we are all out in the streets, all spontaneously producing an insurrection, the state's technological machines will refuse to initiate a bloodbath. Let us go deeper into this problem, though, so as to think the possibility of scientific thought. To reclaim the concept of science is more than simply recognizing the efficacy of instruments. It concerns anti-capitalist theory itself. And to argue that there is such a thing as a revolutionary science is even bolder than arguing for the necessary recognition of the scientific instruments monopolized by the ruling classes. Here is a totalizing assumption. Science should find its home at the heart of theories of organization and strategy because science, the only thing capable of generating facts and truths, is superior to non-science. What do we mean then by science? 
In the previous section, I briefly discussed how science is open to the future, a process in development that produces, through historical struggle, universal truths, that is, facts that are applicable in every particular context, though also mediated by these contexts. Although science is often defined in popular discourse as the empirical method utilized by those disciplines that we are educated to understand as, quote, properly, unquote, scientific, such a definition is about as useful as saying, quote, biology is biology, unquote, or, quote, chemistry is chemistry, unquote, and ignores the logical basis that makes these disciplines different from non-scientific theoretical terrains. The empirical method is indeed important and is a significant tool for establishing truths in particular scientific disciplines. But to reduce the definition of science to, quote, empiricism, unquote, results in positivism, which is precisely what many of us have learned to suspect whenever the word science is spoken. Science is that which speaks to material conditions without mystification. Science provides a natural explanation of natural phenomena. Physics is a physical explanation of physical phenomena. Biology is a biological explanation of biological phenomena. Chemistry is a chemical explanation of chemical phenomena. And historical materialism is an historical-slash-social explanation of historical-slash-social phenomena. Why then is historical materialism a revolutionary science? Because the historical-slash-social explanation of historical-slash-social phenomena is the very mechanism of class struggle, of revolution. And the scientific hypothesis is that which is capable of demystifying the whole of history in myriad societies, a way in which to gauge any and every social struggle capable of producing historical change. Hence, without a scientific understanding of social struggle, we are incapable of recognizing when and where failed theories manifest. The physicist has no problem banning Newtonian speculation to the past where it belongs. They possess a method of assessment based on the development of a specific scientific terrain. If we resist a similar scientific engagement with social struggle, we have no method of making sense of the ways in which revolutionary hypotheses have been disproven in the historical crucible due to historical, quote, experiments, unquote, of class struggle. To reject a scientific understanding of struggle is to assert that these past experiments, the complete failures, the half-successes, the half-failures, have failed to establish anything significant, and so we are doomed to successive attempts at directionless reinvention. A scientific understanding of struggle, however, teaches us about the theoretical terrain of struggle that has been presented by history through humanity's past endeavors and is still open to the future. Which social struggles establish new truths due to marginal but universalizable success? Which successive social struggles learn from these past establishments of truth and went a little further before also meeting failure? How, then, do we apply what has been scientifically proven in these social experiments to our particular circumstances so as to go even further? These are questions that can only be asked if we have the meter of science to gauge our practice, thus demanding, at every moment of struggle, an attention to necessity. Without such an understanding of reality, we have no way of making sense of our practice. We might as well forget the past, act as if everything is particularly unique, 
and ignore every moment when this repetition of failure ought to be treated as obvious. Movementism receives its strength in this grand project of forgetting. Puritanism The Puritan pilgrims who led the colonization of North America believed that they stood in opposition to the dogmatism of mainstream Christianity. They refused to recognize a similar dogmatism in their rigid morality, in their hatred of the Church of England and the Papists of Rome. Since movementism finds its theoretical center in the most powerful nations of the Western Hemisphere, despite being echoed and encouraged by similar tendencies in Europe, perhaps it is only natural that this sense of Puritan self-righteousness, this Protestant ethic of decentralization, and disunified theoretical praxis would eventually hamper the social movements in the U.S. and Canada. It would be rather simplistic, however, to reduce the current cult of disorganized activism to a sentiment inherited from the predominant religious ideology of these nations' establishment. Such an analogy, however, is only interesting as an exercise in hermeneutics. It is better to simply accept that a dogmatic commitment to a supposed non-dogmatism exists rather than speculate on its possibly arcane ideological origins. There are other factors, after all, some of which may provide greater explanatory depth and many that intersect and combine. Generations of anti-communism, the collapse of actually existing socialism, the comparative level of privilege enjoyed by those who live at the centers of capitalism. If anything, the analogy of Puritan Protestantism might be able to explain the self-righteous need to arrogantly cling to the movementist strategy in the face of historical evidence. Better to accept only the evidence of actually existing socialism's failures, its supposed totalitarianism, just as the fundamentalist accepts only the evidence that the world is irrevocably fallen and writhing in sin. In this sense, the movementist horizon becomes akin to the rapture. This desire to cling to decentralized activist organizing is evident in the constant appeal to methods, politics, and scattered social movements that were enshrined by the past movementist cycle. The lingering fascination with the EZLN, for example, is telling. There is a reason that the Zapatistas have received sainthood, while the Sendero Luminoso has not. The latter's aborted people's war placed it firmly in the realm of failure. The former, in refusing to attempt a seizure of state power, were to escape any resemblance of a catastrophic communism. But when a movement actually tries to take power, and goes so far as to almost succeed, in its collapse the meaning of its actions will be written by the ruling class intelligenista, and everyone beholden to the common sense of this class. Organizations such as the EZLN have avoided the fate of the PCP because they did not walk the same path of revolutionary necessity that is often tragic and brutal, where there will always be mistakes, where the problem of differing class morality produces ethical confusion, where failure is more spectacular with each heightened level of struggle. Maybe the desire to cling to movementism speaks more to a desire for a political purity free from the taint of necessity. Beneath this desire for purity, then, a fear of necessity. We do not want to confront what it would mean to address the dilemma of socialism or barbarism because the only movements we endorse are those that have never developed far enough to treat this question as anything more than an abstraction. But this was always the problem with movementism. 
a symptom of the past cycle of disorganized struggle, where everything communist was rejected a priori as a dead end. At the very least, we can understand this previous rejection as a product of the times. Actually existing socialism had only crumbled a decade earlier. The ruling class ideologues were working overtime to foster the belief that communism was irrelevant, and most activists living at the centers of imperialism, typically myopic when it comes to most of the world, were largely ignorant of the new round of communist struggle that was erupting in the global peripheries. Even the fact that the anti-globalization anarchists were capable of noticing an armed movement outside of the first world was surprising, though the reason they would choose to focus on the Zapatistas instead of the Senderistas was perhaps predictable. Still, at least that stage of movementism was a sign of the times, the product of a defeated working class movement in the world's most privileged nations. The past cycle of movementist struggle declared fragmentation and disunification to be virtuous in an attempt to distance itself from fallen communism. But now we have a strange hybrid, a reclamation of communism as an abstraction that asserts itself in the midst of a renewed movementism that is no different in practice from the movementism that dismissed communism as a dead end. Thus, all these attempts to reclaim communism cannot help but sublimate the sentiments of anti-communist movementism. The only difference is in the jargon, in an abstract desire to save a terminology rather than a concrete practice. And yet the truth is that this abstract reclamation of communism has come too late. The movementism of today shares the same problems as the movementism of yesterday, regardless of the reclamation of communism on the part of some. Thus we find movements that are still built upon nebulous theoretical foundations, composed predominantly of people who might not be interested in even communism's name, and ideologues attempting to speak for these movements in a manner that might be perceived as alien. These movements often emerge from popular rebellions, and those who attempt to explain their disunification will appeal to common slogans and concepts. The ideologues of the past cycle of movementism were at least humble enough to recognize this element of disarticulation. They were also theoretically consistent when they treated this disarticulation as a virtue, but refused to call it communism. Today's gray eminences, and their desire to reestablish the name communism as simply an abstract notion, are trying to brand a series of disorganized and limited rebellions according to their own conceptual constellation. Hence the problem of tailism, where the attempt to popularize the name of communism amounts to running behind a rebellion that rejects articulation, attempting to make it conform to jargon that it would otherwise reject because the fact of its disorganization makes it allergic to theoretical and practical unity. Even worse is the fact that those who are attempting to reclaim communism end up catching the same plague that infects the movements they tail, the fear of necessity. It is one thing for an activist involved in the Occupy movement to reject all of the principles of past communisms, to dismiss world historical revolutions. It is quite another thing for those who want to renew the tradition of communism to act in the same manner and, in the midst of this performance, worry about alienating themselves by speaking of a concrete communism. Better to just tail the masses, 
without even wondering at the class composition of the masses that are being tailed. Better to hope that this rebellion is a revolutionary movement and that we can influence its direction with our books about, quote, hypotheses, unquote, and, quote, horizons, unquote, instead of wondering about the problem of strategy and historical efficacy. We must wonder when the now mostly defunct occupied Wall Street Journal refuses to communicate anything openly communist and yet is being edited by known communists. In the manic flurry to become part of this current round of rebellions, we have inherited the movementist fear of necessity. And in this context, it is no wonder that we are terrified of speaking anything but the name of communism. Sectarianism The shibboleth of sectarianism is one of the common excuses for endorsing the most banal forms of movementist praxis. After all, if a unified revolutionary movement requires, by its very definition, a unified theory, then such a theory necessarily excludes other theoretical approaches. While it is true that every theoretically unified organization will experience multiple and competing political lines, it is also true that there cannot be a unified movement in which contradictory theoretical lines operate. The fantasy of movementism is that there can indeed be this type of multiplicity that, despite this fragmentation, will spontaneously produce an apocalyptic moment of unity. Hence, any talk of the necessity of a revolutionary organization, unified in and disciplined by a coherent theory, must be judged as heretical by movementism's ideologues and adherents. To speak of this necessity is to be charged with pushing an exclusionary political line, fostering, quote, division, unquote, and behaving in a sectarian manner. Amongst those committed to movementism, then, it is a great sin to reject this approach and argue instead for a praxis in which revolutions have been made historically. The sectarians here are similar to the heretics of the Catholic Church who were excommunicated for promoting rebel sects. Clearly, we would be remiss if we were to argue that sectarianism is not a problem. We know that there are some Marxist and Marxist organizations, most of whom act as if they are still living in the first two decades of the 20th century, that are indeed frightfully sectarian. These tiny grouplets are incapable of participating in coalitions, dogmatically unwilling to engage in meaningful ideological line struggle, and spend most of their energy attacking other small sects that are similar to themselves. Their political praxis is little more than an act of religious self-righteousness, where they imagine themselves to be the guardians of a pure Marxist theory that must be protected from historical contamination. But the charge of sectarianism is leveled at every and any organization that dares to question the fundamental movementist doctrine. The charge of sectarianism is also meant to imply that the, quote, sectarians, unquote, are dogmatists. And in some cases, this is indeed correct. But the very fact that they are being charged with sectarianism because they are refusing to abide by what is intended to be a hegemonic doctrine is due to their unwillingness to declare fidelity to movementism. They are sectarians simply because they are seen as sects who have broken from what those who are making the charge deem the normative terrain of anti-capitalism. Thus, the very charge of sectarianism is often generated by a dogmatic unwillingness to question social movementism. In this charge, there is also a myth. 
that people or organizations united around particular revolutionary principles are responsible for the worst excesses of the left in the 20th century, made by people who have rarely bothered to think through revolutionary history, this is a charge that is leveled at any ideology that possesses principled clarity. Essentially, the charge is unprincipled. Those making it would prefer a lack of principles, a willingness to unite behind any vague standard, a rejection of theoretical struggle. Here we discover an intentional amnesia regarding what was actually significant in anti-capitalist history, anti-revisionist movements that, in their principled refusal to peacefully coexist with capitalism, launched innumerable revolutions, some of which were world historical. Beyond this very crude and etymological understanding of sectarianism, however, where we can understand the word sectarian by its root, sect, we need to go further and examine the concept of the word that is obscured by the name. For sectarianism means something more than the theory and practice of a sect, just as the word hegemony means something more than the polity of a hegemon. And the way in which the charge of sectarianism is commonly used by the normative movementist left demonstrates a failure to understand the word's conceptual depth. A dyed-in-the-wool sectarian is someone who declares complete fidelity to the principle of political difference and, in this declaration, accepts this principle as their primary operating ideology. The sectarian will not engage with people outside of their sect, except to treat them as enemies, because they fear ideological pollution. The sectarian closes their self from history, treats their ideology as sacrosanct, and advocates cultish behavior. The sectarian imagines that their sect possesses a completed truth and, due to this great act of imagining, refuses to recognize that the lack of growth in this sect is a sign of stagnation. An organization that is sectarian will not grow in any significant manner and will remain doomed to political irrelevance due to a rigid dogmatism that can only collect those adherents that every religious cult preys upon, a small minority of religious-minded individuals who are looking for easy answers, desire an excuse to act in a self-righteous manner, and are generally maladjusted troglodytes who dream of leading the masses even as they despise these masses for failing to recognize the great truths of their sect. But principled political difference by itself does not amount to sectarianism, though it is often treated as such by those who would judge any moment of principled difference as sectarian heresy. Indeed, if endorsing a principled and politically different revolutionary ideology was the measure of sectarianism, then Marx and Engels would have to be sectarian for daring to wage an ideological line struggle against the other and utopian socialist approaches that threatened to mislead the movement in the 19th century. Let us go further so as to understand how this definition is completely absurd. If we were to define the concept of sectarianism as simply, quote, principal political difference, unquote, then we would have to also accept that all anti-capitalists, even movementists, are sectarian insofar as they maintain a principal political difference with pro-capitalists. Maintaining a principal political difference is itself a necessity, part of developing a movement capable of drawing demarcating lines, and even those who would endorse movementism have to do so if they are also to maintain their anti-capitalism. Political lines can and must be drawn. The enemy draws them, and thus understands that we are the enemy, and so we need to have the very same understanding if we are to survive. 
Only liberals, who imagine that there really is no enemy and that everyone will get along under the peace of welfare capitalism, believe that the drawing of these lines is a violent act that, like violence itself, is immoral because it is the way in which the enemy behaves. In this context, however, the liberal stands within the lines drawn by this enemy and is thus incapable of understanding that they are endorsing a reality determined by the most insidious and imminent violence. Moreover, political differences do matter because there are significant differences between political ideologies. The praxis of movementism, despite some of its adherents' claims about big tent socialism, is generally based on an anarchist assessment of reality and is thus, in itself, a political ideology at odds with those its adherents would seek to pull into its orbit. Disparate Marxist approaches are indeed quite different in how they understand the political fault lines and what needs to be done. To pretend that all of these trajectories are ultimately the same, metaphorically similar workers with identical tools attacking the identical problem, is a myth fostered by those who imagine that class struggle is homogeneous despite their claims about the importance of heterogeneity. Movementism demands a homogeneity that masquerades as heterogeneity, a multiplicity of trajectories but if and only if these trajectories recognize that the overall approach is correct and do not dare to organize outside of the movement as praxis or call it into question. The Maoist is not identical to the Trotskyist. The Marxist is not identical to the Anarchist. Their tools are not the same. Their grasp of the object with which they are engaging is not precisely identical. To pretend otherwise is about as useful as pretending that Marx and Engels were the same as Proudhon, enduring, forgetting the ideological war waged against these differences so as to define the terrain of revolutionary theory. Some of those who speak now of communist hypotheses and horizons, who are attempting to revise the word without critical attention to its concrete historical development as a revolutionary concept, are the same people who would have us believe that these theoretical differences do not matter. Thus, the dismal charge of sectarianism is yet another example of the fear of necessity. Ideological line struggles are indeed necessary. We must not forget that part of the communist necessity is to draw political lines of demarcation and to understand, in this moment of drawing, the forces of revolution and counter-revolution and a further line must be drawn between those who would treat communism as a necessity, and in this treatment, learn from the past world historical revolutions, and those who would treat it only as a hypothesis, a horizon, an ideal possibility. Chapter 2. Collaboration and Contingency Despite the unwillingness to examine the riddle of necessity, to speak directly to its demands, there is often the a priori recognition of this fact. All of these nebulous attempts to reassert communism must accept, even in their inability to make concrete assessments, that the end of capitalism is necessary, though not, it must be admitted, and accepted, preordained. Some attempts go so far as to summon the name of Lenin and other revolutionaries. Jody Dean, for example, speaks of the need for a Leninist style of organization a significant and laudable statement on the part of a popular academic. Unfortunately, her Leninism is reduced to a form without content, a better organized Occupy, something that emerges spontaneously from Occupy. 
There are times when she claims that communism cannot be deferred indefinitely, but with such a defanged Leninism that will invent processes as it spontaneously develops, the revolution can only be deferred, her horizon remains distant. So after all this talk of horizons and ideal forms, necessity itself is recognized only insofar as it hovers as a storm over that distant horizon. After denouncing the usual aspects of the communist past according to a vague, quote, anti-Stalinist, unquote, narrative, to conjure the name of Lenin is like a stage trick. After speaking of revolutionary processes that will emerge spontaneously through struggle, it is strange to argue against deferring communism indefinitely, which is precisely what the practice she valorizes presumes. It is difficult to know what we should make of this recognition of necessity, sometimes sublimated and sometimes reified. For if the concept of necessity is an assumption pushed under this new discourse of communism, or an abstract notion perceived as an ideal form, then it ceases to matter. The questions it demands, the historical experiences it has produced, are left either misconceived or unanswered. Pushing the concept of necessity to the margins, the politics mobilized, or rather undermobilized, by this discourse generates the appearance of radicalism unmoored from concrete foundations. Hence the proliferation of various groups promoting an exciting new radicalism free from our supposedly boring revolutionary past, the Invisible Committee and its, quote, coming insurrection, unquote, the prior Tekin group and its nebulous notion of, quote, bloom, unquote, Franco Berardi's linguistic revolution that explicitly denies historical necessity, Theory wrenched from the framework of revolutionary science can only be radical in form. Perhaps this was always the intent. Fear either supervenes, fear of the necessities demanded by an actual revolutionary movement, or is sublimated beneath the appearance of radicalism along with the concept of necessity itself. In this context, then, we must ask why the unfolding theory, hard won through world historical revolution, is considered obtuse and alienating by the same people who never tire of inventing quote, new, unquote, and impenetrable concepts, whose writing seems intentionally opaque, and whose radicalism appears to be little more than an intellectual exercise. What should those of us who declare fidelity to a revolutionary communism that emerged from the experience of class struggle care for a theory that primarily locates its radicalism on the level of appearance? That it is obscure and abstract? That properly belongs at an academic conference rather than in the streets and countryside? For these theoretical abstractions are indeed only popular amongst first world academics and dilettantes, students and would-be intellectuals, anarchists from middle-class suburbs searching for words and ideas to guarantee a revolutionary ideology. At the margins and in the peripheries, these theories have gained very little credence. These contemporary manifestos, greeted with excitement by a small population of radicals at the centers of capitalism, are not as new as their champions believe. The working class movement, the revolutionary struggle of the masses, has experienced innumerable and similar attempts to revise revolutionary theory. Eugene During, for example, attempted to provide an alternative and prettier theory to the supposed boringness of communist ideology. And though the theoretical categories he used might now seem hackneyed, this is only because we have the privilege of historical perspective. 
Dering was, in fact, drawing upon a conceptual constellation that a late 19th century intellectual would have understood and found exciting, a constellation that had little to do with the concrete experience of the European proletariat of that period. Dering's influence was significant enough amongst intellectuals flirting with socialism that other prominent thinkers treated him as an equally prominent representative of socialism. Nietzsche's various and confused attacks on socialism come mainly from his reading of Dering. There is no evidence that Nietzsche ever read Marx or Engels. Herzl's Zionism, along with the Dreyfus Affair, was partially influenced by an assumption that socialism was anti-Semitic due to an understanding of socialism derived from Dering, who was also an anti-Semite. But now we only know Dering because Engels took the time to thoroughly destroy his theoretical doctrine, and in doing so, proved the strength of what Dering took to be out of step with intellectual fashion. To Dering, we can add Guy Debord and Situationism, a theory that crystallized during the Paris Rebellion of 1968 and that is still beloved by those activists obsessed with vague theoretical praxis such as culture jamming, psychogeography, and other abstract concepts that are compelling because of their obscurantism. And though Debord might have had no significant impact on concrete struggle, even in the context from which he emerged, it might even be accurate to claim that situationism matters little to even most academic leftists these days. He is worth mentioning because so many of these, quote, new, unquote, attempts at reclaiming communism often speak his name. There are other names and other attempts, and those that were not preserved by academic and publishing institutions were forgotten by the end of the 1980s, when the communism they sought to revise was supposedly defeated. More than a critical reflection of supposedly, quote, orthodox, unquote, communism, these eclectic or overly academic communisms are the symptom of a larger problem, the inability to overcome normative ideology, even in the midst of recognizing its existence. At the centers of capitalism, where capitalist hegemony is generally complete, we have been trained since birth to accept the ruling ideas of the ruling class as common sense. Although we have been successful in stepping outside of this common sense in order to recognize the need to end capitalism, we are often incapable of apprehending the meaning of this necessity due to how we have been taught to perceive the world. We have been taught failure. We have been educated to believe precisely what a class ideology that is concerned with preserving the current state of affairs claims about the history of class struggle. So when we step outside of the end of history narrative, it is easier to gravitate towards those supposedly critical strains of communism, dismiss what these strains name as, quote, orthodoxy, unquote, according to the standard of capitalist propaganda, and embrace, quote, new, unquote, communist ventures. This is what the Invisible Committee is and what its predecessor, the Tekin Group, was. This is Berardi's uprising, unintentionally satirical with its imaginary revolution. This is what all of these similar reclamations of communism, from endnotes to theory communiste, are and can ever be. An attempt to profess communism while simultaneously accepting the end of history narrative. This is why the vast majority of these supposed reclamations of communism refuse to speak of the vital revolutionary struggles that have emerged at the peripheries of global imperialism. This is why there is rarely any mention of people's wars. In such a context, the only solution is to tail popular rebellions, 
and in this tailing, refused to provide active and unified leadership. The theoretical constellation might differ, but the practice remains the same, movementism, with its presumption that the disorganization of social movements is an unqualified virtue. To intervene in these spaces and attempt to provide leadership is treated as an act of violence. If an organization of the Leninist style is indeed needed, then we are led to believe that it must invent itself overnight, spontaneously emerging from the next rebellion. But in this context, there are several questions worth asking. Why are there so many new manifestos aimed at delinking from the communist past, and what do they accomplish? Why do academics have an obsession with an opaque theory that resonates primarily with these same academics and activist intellectuals? What theoretical constellation is being dismissed as old-fashioned, boring, and orthodox? And just what does it mean to reclaim the concept of necessity as something that is neither sublimated nor reified? Again, it is worth pointing out that these are questions that are mainly pertinent at the centers of capitalism, where we lost our way a long time ago. So we also need to ask the most important question that haunts all of these questions, which is a question of necessity. How do we find our way back to the road of communist revolution? For the moment, however, let us put aside this last question to focus on the haunting itself. The Haunted Past So what should we make of every new manifesto that attempts to delink communism from its revolutionary past? At the very least, we should begin by recognizing that many of these reassertions of communism are not total rejections of history. Significant names and movements are occasionally noted, and this is a partial victory. Dean conjures the ghost of Lenin, Badu appeals to the specter of Mao. The gap between name and concept is occasionally bridged. Sometimes there is a recognition that certain elements of history are ours to reclaim. Badu, who wants to find himself as a Maoist against intellectual fashion, remains unwilling to surrender historical memory to capitalist ideology. He goes so far as to challenge the discourse of, quote, totalitarianism, unquote, that identifies Stalin with Hitler. In some of these cases, then, there is a laudable attempt and an ideological struggle to return a variety of names to what is considered acceptable discourse, even amongst left-wing academia. In 2007, Slavoj Žižek, Sebastian Budgen, and Stathis Kuvlakis initiated the opening salvo of this reclamation by releasing the collection Lenin Reloaded, an attempt to make Lenin palatable for academics and intellectuals at the centers of capitalism. Before this reassertion of communism as a name, and under the auspices of a simplified Marxism or socialism, it was inappropriate to speak of Lenin, let alone Mao or Stalin, unless we were speaking of the, quote, betrayal, unquote, of some vague socialist ideal. Indeed, those Trotskyists and post-Trotskyists, who are primary authorities of Marxism in the first world academia, would only speak of Lenin outside of an academic setting. They were obviously content to accept the discourse that compared Stalin to Hitler, due to their obsession with an imaginary Stalinism, just as they were happy to ban the name of Mao from acceptable discourse. Thus, we should at least recognize the significance of this reclamation. And yet the rearticulation of communism, regardless of the names that are often mobilized, 
still persists in the delinking of communism from its revolutionary past. Although such a delinking appears to be laudable, these manifestos resonate with those raised in the so-called, quote, end of history, unquote, where anti-communist ideology is ascendant. Moreover, many of these reclamations still refuse to speak those banned names since they remained convinced of their betrayal. All attempts to alienate ourselves from our revolutionary history can be presented as pragmatic and critical. The desire to close those historical doors through which the ghosts of the past revolutions emerge has been the tactical practice of radical anti-capitalists at the centers of global capitalism for a long time, crystallizing after the collapse of actually existing socialism. Even before this collapse, it was often the hallmark of supposedly, quote, critical, unquote, Marxism in the first world, perhaps due to the influence of Trotskyism, to denounce every real-world socialism as Stalinist, authoritarian, totalitarian. Since the reification of anti-communist triumphalism, this denunciation has achieved hegemony. It is the position to which would-be Marxist academics gravitate and accept as common sense, an unquestioned dogma. Hence, we are presented with a constellation of attempts to reboot communism by calling it something different, by making its past either taboo or meaningless, by resorting to a self-defeating philosophy where the idea of, quote, true, unquote, communism is eternally conjured in order to dismiss past revolutions due to their inability to demonstrate fidelity to this pure idea. Beneath these attempts to alienate communism from its past, we occasionally discover moments of platonic idealism. Out there somewhere is the idea of true communism, upon which we must reflect in order to reach that distant horizon of human freedom. But the ghosts of history cannot be exercised. Attempting to ignore them by choosing to speak of a communism without reference to these shades will remain haunted. Most often such a discourse will presuppose, as a default principle, that this haunting means precisely what the anti-communist discourse claims it means. Occasionally it will seek a different past, skipping over the entire history of revolutionary communist experience, and pretend that utopian theories and movements, alienated, mystified, idealist, are the only worthwhile precedent for communism. In the end, the attempt to delink from our revolutionary past, treating it as a prison from which we must escape, does violence to history. To claim that we must unshackle ourselves from this past and seek a new communist horizon is to denounce everything for which revolutionaries have fought and died. These ghosts can teach us something, both in their successes and failures, and we learn nothing by dismissing them as unwelcome poltergeists. And yet the obsession to discover a new approach to communism that is somehow free from the past as if we can ever escape this past that weighs upon us, quote, like a nightmare, unquote, prides itself in its supposed creativity and critical depth. We must ask, however, what is creative about trying to reboot a tradition by deleting its world historical moments? This is much like the cliche of reinventing the wheel. It might indeed be creative to make a triangular or octagon wheel, but it is not very meaningful creativity. And just what, precisely, is critical about building a communism by repeating the common-sense anti-communist ideology about past socialisms? It is very easy to believe we are being critical by challenging the supposed dogmas of communism when, in point of fact, 
We are simply repeating what every capitalist textbook has been claiming about communism for decades. The creativity and criticism of academic theory has always been rather banal. The jargon might seem exciting. The supposed newness of neologisms and clever frameworks might indeed be challenging, but there really hasn't been anything thoroughly creative and critical that has emerged from the ranks of academic speculation for a long time. There are innumerable obscurantisme terroristes to cite the term Foucault once applied to Derrida, clever theorists who achieve the illusion of critical creativity by a framework defined by obscurantist jargon. But nothing that has provided a new concrete analysis of a concrete situation. Nothing capable of changing the world. The exciting theory, the creative theory, the theory capable of thoroughly critiquing the world, has only ever emerged from revolutionary movements. But since this was an insight of Marx and the tradition of Marxism, it is only natural that non- or anti-Marxist academics would dismiss this axiom and lose themselves in an obsession to produce new theories and new manifestos, none of which will ever matter to the masses, which is to say, will ever be capable of doing what this kind of manifesto claims it can do in the first place, change the course of history. Thus, we should have little patience for those who complain about the supposed poverty of thought amongst the ranks of today's anti-revisionist communisms. The constant complaining about the so-called, quote, dogmatic, unquote, fidelity to figures such as Mao or Lenin or even Stalin, this fear and trembling caused by those who even dare to uphold the failed people's war in Peru is a symptom of a falsely critical creativity. It is a bit like telling physicists that they are not critical or creative for daring to take the general theory of relatively seriously, thus proposing that it would be better to just pretend that Einstein and all of the trouble his theory caused did not exist. Most importantly, such a complaint demonstrates a very uncreative and uncritical fidelity to anti-communist ideology. We really must ask, what is so critical about accepting the fixed interpretation of the world that we've been socialized into accepting since birth. It is rather asinine to complain about dogmatism and orthodoxy if one adheres to the height of dogmatic orthodoxy, the bourgeois way of seeing the world. Embracing the risk of sounding academically unfashionable, I want to suggest that there can be no creative or critical manifesto that exists outside the bounds of a concrete and revolutionary understanding of necessity. Specifically, and in this context, the only worthwhile manifestos are those that are capable of producing an understanding of reality as seen from below. Quote, when seen from below or seen from above, the same reality is often viewed very differently. Two different points of view, which generate two different understandings, and consequently, two different kinds of feelings and reactions. The first revolutionary acting class struggle is to recognize understand, and seize the world from below, we must not fall into the trap that is believing that the bourgeoisie's hallucinations from above are truthful reality. The current world situation is a good example of this double standard, this two-faced way of seeing things. Seen from above, everything is prosperity, enrichment, wealth and democracy. Seen from below, it is crisis, corruption, war, and misery." Unquote. PCR-RCP, How We Intend to Fight. None of these new academic manifestos, even when they veil themselves as Marxist, are capable of representing the world from below. 
They are always above, filtering down from the heights of academic speculation, divorced from revolutionary struggle, concerned with a distant horizon and not the brutal necessity that demands revolution. They are constantly looking towards a future that is unchained from the past. Here we must recall Walter Benjamin's warning in Theses on Philosophy of History, for though he was also an estranged academic, he was aware of the danger of a movement premised solely on a future unshackled from its past, where he claims that this focus on a utopian horizon results in the passing of, quote, the true picture of the past, unquote, and that, quote, every image of the past that is not recognized by the present as one of its own concerns threatens to disappear irretrievably, unquote. All this talk of new horizons must be abandoned if we cannot honestly engage with the image of our past and how it affects the present. Those horizons that are alienated from the world of below, that do not emerge as goals produced by the past struggles of the wretched of the earth, should be treated as idle speculation.